0: The following program is sponsored by the National Prayer Chapel.
2: It is better to wait. The Lord God Almighty and put your trust fully in him. It is better to look for his wisdom and timing than lean on what you understand. We have a father who sees from above, he knows when we have been tested. he works together all things on behalf of the children that he dearly loves. So take heart and be strong, though his ways may seem long, it is better. It's wise to give up in the idol we treasure and strive for contentment instead.
3: Jesus said to his disciples, If anyone wills to come after me, he must deny himself and must take up his cross and follow me. For whoever may will to save his life will lose it, but whoever may lose his life for my sake will find it. For what does a man profit if he may gain the whole world? may suffer the loss of his soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? For the Son of Man is destined to come in the glory of his Father with his angels, and then he will reward each one according to his activity. Almighty God, as we come to the broadcast today, we ask that your Spirit would direct our words. For we have chosen, Almighty God, to take up our cross and follow you. Lord, we recognize that all authority and all power rests in your hands and your heart. Lord, thank you for your kindness to us. Thank you, Lord, for each one who's now listening to this broadcast. I pray you will quicken this word in their hearts. Thank you, mighty King. I pray in your name. Amen. Amen. Welcome to Pilgrim's Progress. I'm Ray Greenley from the National Prayer Chapel. And with me in studio again today is Pastor and Missionary Jim Kerwin. Jim, welcome.
1: Thank you, Ray. It's good to be here again
3: we've been speaking about who has the authority in the kingdom of God and we recognize that today there's a very popular misconception that somehow God has given me all the authority and God has to do what I ask him to do that I'm the one who binds and looses in the name of Jesus and I do that supposedly by declaring the blood of Jesus over something. And I bind it. Now, I've talked with many people, Jim, who who say, I'm having a terrible time, Pastor, and I'm binding and loosing in the name of Jesus. But nothing's happening. Why not? So I ask you the question. Why not, Pastor Jim?
1: Well, what if the verse on which you establish that supposed truth is actually a mistranslation. Is God required to honor a mistranslation of his word? No. (laughs) That's what it boils down to. Uh, It's interesting. As I was praying last Friday, uh, just waiting on the Lord in the morning, I had to kind of clear my whole schedule because this very subject came up mostly with the idea that we would be on air together and so i did a study on matthew 16:19 that's generally ground zero for where this teaching comes from and it's normally translated this way uh, i'm going to read from the new american standard but not the current translation i'm going to read from the one that came out in 1977 it has since been altered so listen to this see if it if it sounds like something that you've been taught and you believe 16:19 in Matthew I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven and whatever you shall bind on earth shall be bound in heaven and whatever you shall loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven so there it is i have a I have a scriptural right to stand on that right well first of all contextually who's peter speaking who's jesus speaking to he's speaking to peter all right not necessarily to me or to all of us But let's just let that one go, and let's just actually look at it in the Greek. Now, I don't want to bore you to death with things about Greek tenses, but the tense of something, accurate translation, is very important because if we get something wrong, we send people off in the wrong direction. This phrase that's translated, shall be loosed in heaven or bound in heaven, Uh, Let me read it to you in the updated New American Standard that came out in the 1990s. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven. Not shall be, shall have been. And whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. Or maybe even better, as C.B. Williams' translation where he says, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven and whatever you forbid on earth must be what is already forbidden in heaven. And whatever you permit on earth must be what is already permitted in heaven. Now, that's a rendering of something in the Greek called the, the perfect passive participle. And again, don't let your eyes cross. We'll be, we'll be through with this in about 45 seconds. If something's passive, the action is happening to the the object. All right? And if it's perfect, that means it's it's in the past. And the fact that it's a participle means that we've taken a a verb, we put an ing ending on it, and we've made it adjectival in nature, and is modifying something. And usually the easiest way to translate that, but it doesn't come across smoothly in English, is whatsoever having been bound in heaven you bind on earth. Whatsoever having been loosed in heaven, you loose on earth. Now, did you notice the order? The order is, what is the condition in heaven? That's what you respond to. I could read a bunch of translations, but you could find them on your shelf, no doubt, that say the opposite, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. That's not an accurate rendition of the Greek. So the thing is done in heaven First, Or the acknowledgement of what is already existing in heaven is, is first. And then on that, Peter, or Christian believer, you act. So it's not me binding that binds something in heaven. It's not me loosing something that looses it in heaven. It's the fact that it's already been loosed or bound in heaven that allows me to speak a thing because it's true.
3: So literally... We're saying that Jesus does not give to us the keys of the kingdom and he no longer controls them. Exactly. I mean He keeps the key of the kingdom.
1: And you know that's in And you find that in Revelation. Yeah. It says Jesus who has the key. Yeah, I have the key of death and hell and everything else. The government shall be upon his shoulder. When it has that, that passage in Isaiah Keys used to be a very long affair, about a meter long and very heavy. And for someone to have the, the the key on his shoulder was another way. Another way to say that was he had the government on his shoulder. He had authority. He, that's right. He's the, he's the one who can open and close. I'm the one who opens and no man shuts and who shuts and no man opens. That's what he says there in those first three chapters of Revelation, not... You have the keys, and whatever you bind, and whatever you lose, and so forth. It's just in fitting with what he told us in the Lord's Prayer. Thy will be done, as in heaven, so on earth. All right. So that's it, fitting with the the context of the rest of the of the passage of the rest of Scripture.
3: Read the Williams translation again.
1: All right. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven and whatever you forbid on earth must be what is already forbidden in heaven and whatever you permit on earth must be what is already permitted in heaven.
3: Now, I opened with the passage of Scripture intentionally um, out of Matthew, the 16th chapter. Just a few verses after where I read. Just a few verses later. When Jesus says to his disciples, If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. So Jesus does not follow us, we follow Jesus. He has the ultimate authority. We don't. He's the one who makes happen in heaven what he wants on the earth. We're simply the functionaries to carry out his will as he reveals that to us. So Jesus doesn't come and sit at this mic and teach you. Instead, he sent me and today Pastor Jim, and he gave us his word, he revealed it to us, and we come and share that with you. And we urge you to check everything we say by going to the scriptures. But when the translation is incorrect, and I could give you other examples of that incorrect translation. If you look in the book of Romans, in the NIV, it will it will indicate that we are declared righteous. But it's an incorrect translation. It should be we are made righteous righteous. So part of what we have to do is very carefully study the scriptures. And particularly, Jim, we have to study them in the context. I mean, you made an astonishing statement last night. You said the Apostle Paul did not
1: write Romans 7. (laughs) And he didn't write Romans 8 or Romans 6 or Romans 5. And what I meant by that was Paul didn't write in chapters. I mean, yes, he wrote everything that we call those chapters, but for instance, people will pull chapter seven out as though it's some special uh impregnable piece of, of uh truth that proves that, that we have to have a sinning Christian. But really, if you read it in the context of especially Romans five through eight, he's he's off on an entirely different thing, saying you're free. You're dead to the law. You're dead to sin. You've been baptized into Jesus Christ. Here's the condition, chapter 7, of someone who hasn't yet entered into that, ending with, oh, wretched man that I am, but thanks be to God. And then he goes off into Romans 8 and, and praise God. So that the normal Christian life isn't 7. The normal Christian life is Romans 5 through 8, and this is what happens if you decide you want to live under the law 7 so many
3: Christians
1: live under Romans 7 and never get the victory that's right and they think they have scriptural justification because they're going to cling to 7 and not be in context but the fact is we have the
3: victory in Jesus and we have the victory because he has the authority and his word is the final word So when we come to this 16th chapter of the book of Matthew, it is of no value or of no profit for you to go around saying, I bind you, Satan, in the name of Jesus. Unless in your prayer closet and in your scripture, you've been very clear that Jesus wants that bonding, that Binding, yes. That binding done in the name of Jesus. Because what
1: is bound in heaven is then to be bound on earth. That's right. Jesus I know, and Paul I know, but who are you? That's what happened to the seven sons of Sceva in, in the book of Acts. They and were, they were beaten. Yeah, they were, they were using Jesus' name. I'm sure had they been here, they would have been, in our time frame, they would have been using all of the you know, the, the pet phrases, I bind and I loose and blah, blah, blah. Um, but, you know, one thing I challenge people on, well, first of all, just common sense. Okay, what's the biggest planet in our solar system? Do you remember? It's the planet Jupiter, mm-hmm. all right? If every time a Christian says, I bind you, Satan, in Jesus' name, if that were a single link in a chain, all the chain wrapped around Satan would, would be floating out there bigger than the planet Jupiter. But he still seems to be pretty active to me. Um, why is that? Because by and large, it's empty words. And those empty words are based on perhaps an innocent reading of Matthew 16:19. whatever you bind shall be done. Whereas it's the opposite. If it's bound in heaven then you bind it on earth. If it's loosed in heaven, you loose it on earth. Now, that represents two different conditions. Let me cover them. One is, I find what the matter is in heaven. That's what I can declare. Or, by prayer and intercession, by being in the presence of God until well, that song that we were talking about—it's better to wait on the Lord. You know, we have a problem with waiting on the Lord, and you know what the problem is for modern Christians with waiting on the Lord—you have to wait. That's right. <laughs> it doesn't happen in three minutes. It doesn't happen in three days. Maybe it doesn't happen in three months. But if you wait, He will reveal His mind and heart. All right. The other this matter of prayer—I often hear with these people who declare it, they say, well, look at the example of, of Elijah. You know, he just appears out of nowhere in First Kings 17, and he says, thus says the Lord, there's going to be no rain except by my word. And so he's held up as this person who can speak things into, you know, in, into spirit, into physical reality. It's really interesting that nobody ever takes that event and reads it in the context of Scripture because there is a place that tells us what happened before 1 Kings 17, and that's James chapter 5, where James pulls back the curtain of secrecy that covers everybody who wants to wait on the Lord, who accomplishes things in the heavenlies, in the prayer closet, in small groups of prayer, and isn't looking for any glory, He pulls back the curtain and says, look, do you see that man down there? Back in history, Elijah was a man just like you, just like me, subject to like passions." says the King James. And he prayed earnestly, and he shows his, his Hebrew, his Jewish roots. He uses a Hebrism, and he says, praying he prayed. It's like, I don't know how to express the intensity. It's like prayer squared. He gave himself, how long did he give himself to prayer? I don't know, but I'm sure he was full of passion and and anger and jealousy for the name of God and love for his people, Israel, and, and just wanting to whoop him up the side of the head as well and saying, why aren't you believing in Jehovah? And there came a point in his prayer where God said, okay, go speak this, and he did. Now, we see it in miniature at the end of the event on on top of Mount Carmel, where after the sacrifice has been consumed, after the priests of Baal have been destroyed, then he goes and he prays. That's really interesting. Have you ever noticed his posture when he prays? It says he prayed and he put his face between his knees. I mean, he is as small uh, physically as you can possibly get. He just... And then he he prays, he sends his servant seven times. We don't know how long that took. And finally, a report comes back. I see a cloud, the sign of a man's hand. Once again, he prayed, he made himself small. And then he could come and speak the word to Ahab and say, you better saddle up and get out of here or you're going to be stuck in the mud because of this mighty rainstorm that's coming. He didn't just speak it, he went to find out the will and the timing of God. He didn't loose it except in prayer, got permission, then he could speak. We on the other hand are so shallow and so self-centered that we think we can speak and then God has to show up with a towel over his arm like, uh, like a waiter and saying, Yes, how may I serve you? When it's always, how may we serve you, Lord Jesus? How may we serve you, Father?
3: Let's talk for a moment about prayer. There was quite a time in my life when I would pray and nothing would happen. Mm. And I was frustrated by that. And I began to even question many years ago, is God there? Why doesn't he answer? Oh, but weren't you praying in Jesus' name? I was praying in Jesus' name. How are you praying in Jesus' name? Make my wish known and say in the
1: name of Jesus, amen. Ah, okay. Well, that's the first problem. And he didn't answer. <laughs> no wonder, because we don't understand what it means to pray in the name of Jesus. Well, let's talk about that. Okay. Um we had a, we didn't cover everything from the book that we were talking about yesterday, uh, Faith is Substance. But this is one of the things that, that Percy Guttridge excelled at when he was talking about this particular subject. He said, when it came to the name of Jesus, he talks about the seven sons of Sceva that we mentioned in Acts chapter 19. And he says, The very incident, this very incident with the seven sons of Sceva gives us the key of the truth of in my name. It all depends on who says it, not upon the name quoted. Jesus says not that he will answer by virtue of his spoken name, but that the person asking the petition must be in his name when he makes the request. Now, to be in somebody's name in in this particular instance means that you are sent from His presence, and you are speaking with the authority that He gave you while He's while you were in His presence. You are in Christ, and if you are in Christ, one with with Him, then you can you can pray in the name of Jesus. Now,
3: it's very clear that repentance is the only way to enter into Jesus. There is no other way but by by repentance. Well, how do you do that? You've got to go in the prayer closet, and you've got to get before the Lord God of heaven. And part of what happened in my life is I earnestly sought after him, praying sometimes 10 and 12 hours a day, letting everything else go. Just, I had to have an answer from God. My life depended on that answer. As I went before him, all I could see in my spirit, and I saw it physically in my spirit, was a fence that kept me out of the throne room of God. And oh, how I agonized over that fence and wept over that fence. I saw no way to reach God. My prayers would go and hit the ceiling and bounce down like bullets and hit me. I almost said, this is utterly foolish. It's hopeless. God will never answer my prayer. Now, you can pray in church and you can pray in private. You can say your prayers. Many pagan people say their prayers every night. I had one pagan man. He said, oh, pastor, I'm very religious. I say my prayers every night. Well, the difference is I can say my prayers but do they change the physical realm? I judge a person's spiritual maturity by whether or not when they pray the physical realm changes. Can they approach the throne of God in such a manner that there's an answer? If there is no answer, the work of repentance is not complete yet. And it takes time. Sin blocks answered
1: prayer. Can I also say something? Mm -hmm. Okay, prayer blocks answered prayer. Now that sounds silly, but let me explain one of the most wonderful things I've learned about prayer in four words. Get your pen out. Actually, you won't have to because it's very simple. Four words. Shut up and listen. Go into the presence of God, shut up and listen. When you and God are conversing, does God ever get a word in edgewise? In fact, if you and God are conversing, which is what in one sense prayer is supposed to be, what's more important, what you have to say to God Or what God has to say to you. But Jim, let's
3: be very, very straight on this issue. I'd go in before God, and I would shut up, and I would listen, and I wouldn't hear anything, and I'd go to sleep.
1: Well, God's had mercy on you, hasn't he? (laughs) (laughs) Well, yeah, I understand. There has to be this honest
3: confession of my spiritual condition before I can expect to hear from God. If I don't hear from God, there's a problem. It's hard to hear God when he's not talking.
1: Yes, but it's also hard to hear him if you are talking. Oh, yes. That's that's what I found. Yes. Solomon says an interesting thing in, in Ecclesiastes. You don't normally go to Solomon for a lot of spiritual wisdom except in Proverbs. But listen to this. And this is a man who knows something about how to enter the presence of a king. Have you ever read the description of Solomon's throne room? Guard your steps when you go to the house of God and draw near to listen rather than to offer the sacrifice of fools. I didn't say sacrifice of fools, Solomon did. For they do not know they're doing evil. Do not be hasty in word or impulsive in thought to bring up a matter in the presence of God. For God is in heaven and you are on the earth. Therefore, let your words be you.
3: I found and that I would add to that. Let it be with the intention of obeying the word of the Lord. Yeah, you
1: know, Why would God bother to speak to you if he just if he knew it was just going to add to your pile of sin by saying, well, I gave him something else. or I gave her something else to do, and she's not going to do that either.
3: OK, Jim, I want to really zero in on two things very quickly. I want to zero in on what does it mean to be in jesus and a listener just texted me and said would you review what it means to be born again mm. from what we were talking about yesterday. from what we shared yesterday now uh, we're going to do that but i want to open the telephone lines today if you have questions about what we're talking about if your heart you're earnest and you desire serious answers or you want to confess that you're not born again and be prayed for we're here for you so take a pen and jot down the number 877-534-0780 I'll give you the number once again 877 5340780 Now th- I'm not giving you that number to call and argue with us. We're not going to argue with you. We're going to share the straight word of God. If you're earnest in seeking truth and you need help, call right now. 8775340780 Brother Kevin will answer the line, and he'll let us know that you're there.
1: You're talking about what is it to be in the name of Jesus mm-hmm. The simplest answer I can give is being so closely connected that you're you're on i I don't even like to say the same wavelength in Spanish. we use the phrase instead you're on you're on the same wave you are one in purpose, which means. Not that you've changed Jesus' mind, but that he's changed you. He uses a wonderful picture in John John 15 about the vine and the branches and about the life that flows from the vine through the branches in order to produce fruit.
3: Let me give a very simple illustration. If I get in the car this afternoon and I drive into Washington, D.C., I'm in Washington. Okay. Okay. If I come back and I'm in Woodbridge, I'm in Woodbridge. You're very clear about where you're at. You're in a town. All right. Okay. You can likewise be that clear about being in Jesus. Yes. And this passage you just referred to in the 15th chapter of John is literally saying you get your nurturance, you get your strength, you get your everything out of what you're in. And the teaching here is to be in the vine and Jesus is the vine, he's the branch.
1: Yes, and if you're not in the vine, what does it say in that passage? You're cut off. You're cut off and? Burned. Exactly. That's pretty radical stuff. This is gentle Jesus, meek and mild. No, it's Jesus telling us the truth in love. The Lord showed me something else about being in Jesus. To say in Jesus' name means I am asking on behalf of Jesus. Uh, I once saw, call it what you want, uh, uh, a vision, an understanding. I don't know what it was. I saw people entering the throne room and and asking for the most outlandish and wild things. Some sounded spiritual. Some sounded very, very... Self-centered, but (laughs) with each one of those prayers, the father turned to the son at his right hand and said, he said in Jesus' name, did you ask him to ask for that? And Jesus shook his head and said, no, father, never entered my mind. And I also saw at the same time that there's, there's an antechamber before you come into the throne room. And in that antechamber is the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit can tell you what's on the mind and heart of God the Father and of Jesus. And if you go, having laid aside everything else that you think you came for, and go into the throne room to ask the Father for the thing that's on his heart in Jesus' name, then it's as though you're wearing Jesus' signet ring before the Father, proving that the thing you're asking for is the thing that he wants. And what does Jesus always want to do? He wants to please the Father. And what should we always want to do? Never mind my will. You were reading before. Deny yourself. Take up your cross. Follow me. Well, even in prayer, I lay all that aside saying, say, Lord, what's on your heart? And praying that gets astounding results because you and God are in agreement. You really are praying in Jesus' name because you're praying for what he wants. And you're going before the Father saying, Father, this is what your son asked me to ask you for.
3: Some of you who are listening are consumed by your children. Some of you are consumed with biking or canoeing or some other sport. Some of you are completely consumed with movies, with the theater, with concerts. You're consumed, and this is what gives you the purpose to go on living for the rest of the day and doing the hard work you do to earn a living. What I'm trying to say is that Jesus has to become where we find all of our nurturance and all of our strength and we lay aside everything that's of this world. Now, I'm not saying it's wrong to go kayaking or biking or skiing, but if that's the obsession of your life, if that's what you live for, you have blocked Jesus from your
1: heart and from your life. Jim? I was just thinking, uh, maybe it's not such a good analogy nowadays, but what would you think of a husband who said, sweetie, I'm going to be faithful to you 28 days out of every month, but one weekend a month. I I just want to go do my own thing and have my own fling. Any wife in her right mind would say, absolutely not. It's me. Or nothing. Well, what about what about just one week a year? You know, or or even one weekend a year? Nope. Your commitment in a marriage is all forever or nothing, and yet we understand that on a, on a natural level, and know that that would be cause for divorce if that ever happened. But somehow we never applied that to our relationship with Jesus. You know, well, Lord, I'll be faithful except in this, that, or the other matter. I hope that's okay. You you understand my, my weaknesses, my whatever. No.
3: You're either Christian or you're not a Christian.
1: That's right.
3: You're either in the vine or you're cut off as a branch. So let's segue from this, Jim. Share
1: a bit about what it means to be born again. All right. Shall we review quickly what we talked about Mm -hmm. yesterday? All right. What is it that gets born again? What was it that died in the first place? Not Adam's physical body because that lived to 900 years. It wasn't his soul because you are a soul. You are yourself. I am a soul. I am myself. So Adam's self wasn't destroyed. And yet God said, on the very day that you eat, you will surely die. What died was his spirit. Spirit
3: connection with God.
1: That's exactly right. And so what is it that's needed to be restored after all of those millennia? What needed to be restored and what was restored, at least potentially for anybody who responds on Calvary, is that the Holy Spirit can come uh, you, you know the the description that Gabriel gives to Mary about what's going to be conceived in her womb is is very apropos really the the most high shall come upon you the power of the highest shall overshadow you there's a change that happens if we come clean before God and even that even that conviction that the Holy Spirit brings is with a purpose. The purpose is not to make you feel miserable, although you will. The the purpose is to make you see truth. He's the spirit of truth. He guides us into all truth. And unfortunately, the first truth that he guides us into is you are a sinner. And if we give him the opportunity, which often we do not in modern evangelism, we don't give him the opportunity to show us the full truth, the depth, the, the horror, the filth of our condition before God. Even our righteousness, says Isaiah, um, is, is as filthy rags. And I'm not even certain I want to use the actual uh, adjective mm-hmm. uh, that Isaiah uses. But um, so God brings us to that point and he convicts us of the truth of our condition. But I don't want you to think that conviction is just about sin. Conviction is always about truth. And so there comes a point where we're convicted of the truth that Jesus died for me and that he can make his new life in me. He can impart to me this new life, this new birth, this eternal life, which we said like yesterday, eternal life isn't a switch that goes on after you've taken your last breath. Eternal life is God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit coming to dwell in me. So, how do I know if I've been born again? Well, Paul says in Romans 8, he talks about the witness of the Spirit, the Spirit. Bearing witness with our spirit. After you've come through that road, however long or short that God takes you in terms of conviction, dealing with everything that He points out, submitting to His Lordship in everything, agonizing, as we were talking about yesterday, the agonizamai, the striving to enter into the kingdom, then there comes a point when God witnesses that my sins are forgiven. And he witnesses that he's come to dwell on the inside.
3: Now, I want to I emphasize something you're talking about, Jim. This is not cheap and easy. No. It's not religion. It's not mental assent saying, I agree, Jesus is my Lord. That's not being born again. To be born again, you're going to have to take the time and the energy to carefully examine your life in the light of the holy spirit and the scriptures and recognize every area where you have rebelled against god and lived your own life even your own religious life and lay that down at the at the feet of jesus and confess it and say This is what I've done. My heart is cold. It's hard. Or it's lukewarm and it's hard. Everything has to be laid down and it's going to take some time. It's helpful to take a sheet of paper and write down every person you have hurt. And another piece of paper, every person who has hurt you. And then go through those and examine carefully and say, these are the ones I've hurt. Have I have I made restitution? Have I made it right with them? Sometimes you can't, but most times you can. And then again, to look carefully at who has hurt me. Have I forgiven them or do I hold a grudge? Your sins cannot be forgiven until you forgive those who have hurt you or wronged you. So this issue of being born again is not a matter of just words. It's a matter of very carefully walking under the direction of the Holy Spirit, saying, Lord, I desire to be born from above. I desire to become a new person. I know that when I become a new person, I will no longer lust after pornography. It won't interest me. I'll no longer lust after pornography money It will no longer interest me. I'm no longer going to lust after the world, the flesh, or the devil. It's done. And it's done by, in the prayer closet, confessing the depth of your love for that thing and renouncing it and turning aside from it and saying, Lord, I love this sin. But it's standing between us. Would you cause my heart to turn away from it and hate it? Again, this is not a self-help process. This is the miraculous work of the Holy Spirit. As you get honest with him about who you really are, and you confess that, and you repent, you turn aside from it. It's not enough to just confess it. A man confessed to me, I, I'm smoking. Okay. Can I pray for you that this spirit of tobacco would be broken in your life and you would renounce it and turn to Jesus and no longer let it be the comfort of your heart? Well, yes. Then I haven't seen him again.
1: I know he's struggling. There's a there's an honesty that's required, a depth of honesty. Yes, uh, you were you were talking about that kind of prayer I remember a man who was a leader in one of the churches when I was a very young Christian Um, a little strong on the religious side but I mean a good man and uh, he would pray and say oh oh God take away this, this lust that I have you know when I and finally one day the Holy Spirit just pulled him up short and said stop praying that pray the truth you don't, you don't want this taken away. And he was, he was taken aback. It's like, wh- what kind of a way is that to pray? But he, he sat and got really quiet for about 10 or 15 minutes, and then he said, Lord, you're right. I, I love pornography. I, I love to lust after women. And when he got really, really honest with God about where his heart was, God delivered him in an instant. Yes, but as long as he was praying religiously,
3: and dishonestly.
1: He, well, yes, it's funny when we, we pray what we think God wants to hear, what He should hear, what the situation should be. Almost the, it's from a in one sense a good motive, okay, but still it's not honest when you get right down to it. So the Holy Spirit made him be honest, and as soon as he was honest,
3: it was broken.
1: It was broken. That's exactly right. So. Sometimes you pray the thing that, you know, why not go ahead and pray it? Because God already knows what the situation is, and you can't by whitewashing it with uh, that other kind of praying.
3: Okay, so what are the signs that you would expect to
1: see in a born-again person? Ah, well, let let me turn to first John, because John really deals with this in five or six verses that are so helpful that I I wonder that we don't challenge everybody with it. Okay. 1 John 2, 29. If you know that he, meaning Jesus, is righteous, you know that everyone who practices or does righteousness is born of him. So this isn't imputed righteousness. This is righteousness coming out as a fruit. There's a sign of the new birth. First John 3, verse 9, no one who was born of God practices sin and because his seed abides in him and he cannot sin because he's born of God. Oh my goodness, uh, sign of the new birth. Jump over to First John 4, verse 7. Um, Beloved, let us love one another for love is from God and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. So there we've got doing righteousness, uh, deliverance from inbred sin, walking in love. 1 John 5, verse 4, for whatever is born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that's overcome the world, our faith. You know, it kind of brings it back around to where we started. Is the faith that you walk in, the faith you declare, Never mind binding, loosing, all the rest of that. Is that faith, that sign of the new birth, able to set you absolutely free from everything that's in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life? That's God's measuring stick. And then down in 1 John 5:18, we know that no one who's born of God sins. Oh, I thought he already said that. Well, he's underlining it. But he was born of God, keeps him, and the evil one does not touch him Jesus said that same thing the evil one comes and finds nothing in me
3: I want to give also four very simple steps out of the Welsh number one confess every known sin honest Two: put aside every doubtful habit three Obey the Holy Spirit promptly as you walk through this process. And four, begin to confess Jesus Christ publicly. Begin to share what you're going through and what you're talking about. Share it openly and publicly, confessing the name of Jesus. You can be born from above. But you can also call yourself a Christian and be very religious. Have no victory in your inner world or your inner life and crash and burn in the end because it was false. You never paid the price to be crucified with Christ. You named it and claimed it. You you commanded this and you commanded that but in the end you weren't honest with God brother Jim we've come to the end of the broadcast again I thank you for being with me
1: Well, thank you for having me
3: I've enjoyed this and I'm going to ask Pastor Jim if he would pray for you
1: Heavenly Father thank you so much for those who are listening whether live on the radio or the the rebroadcasts afterwards or the just on the YouTube channel, wherever it is, Lord, in these people, there's a hunger. In these saints, there's a, a desire to know you, to walk in the fullness of all that you have in the new birth, to walk in the fullness of all that you have in that state that we call faith. Yes. Lord, we ask now that what you have reserved for them in heaven. Full conviction, full pardon, full deliverance from sin, full knowledge of Jesus living in their heart, that that would be loosed in their lives by their obedience to you.
3: Thank you, Jesus. Amen. Amen. Well, you've been listening to Pilgrim's Progress. I'm Pastor Ray Greenley. Pastor Jim Kerwin has been my guest today. I pray that this has challenged you and that you will put into practice, even as soon as you go off air with us, that you would seek Jesus with all your heart. God bless you. I look forward to hearing from you. Go to our webpage, com. We'll talk soon.
1: Amen.